Good evening, and welcome to the Innie Pratt Free Library. This evening's program is part of the library's Brown Lecture Series, and that is an ongoing series of talks and lectures about African American life and culture. It's so supported by a very generous donation from the Eddie C. and Sylvia Brown Family Foundation, and we're grateful to the Browns for their wonderful support and for helping make programs like this free and open to the public. Now tonight, we're pleased to feature not one, but two authors. They even know each other. <laughs> we're very pleased to have Erica Blount, and they made sure that I pronounce her beautiful name, Danois, <laughs> whose new book is Love, Peace, and Soul. Behind the Scenes of America's Favorite Dance Show, Soul Train, and Samuel G. Friedman, author of Breaking the Line, the season in black college football that transformed the sport and changed the course of civil rights. And I have to, full disclosure, born on the campus of Florida A&M, so I have to get make sure, <laughs> fam you, okay, we have to do that. Um, this then was, is, Danois is a graduate of Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. She teaches at the Philip Merrill School of Journalism at the University of Maryland College Park. And Mr. Friedman is a columnist for the New York Times, professor at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and the author of six books. And tonight, they're going to take us back to the 60s to show how pop culture, music, and black college football played a role in the civil rights so please join me in welcoming our office. Carla, thank you so much. And it's a pleasure in all kinds of ways to be here in Baltimore uh, at the Pratt. Um, I did some of the research from my earlier books, The Inheritance, in this very building. And I know what a uh, cherished place it is uh, in Baltimore. And so it's with Great thanks to Judy Cooper in the uh, programs office here, and my friend uh, Liz Bowie and her husband Dan Fesperman, who are vital in opening doors here to help this happen. And also, you know, to be in a city that has one of the great HBCUs, Morgan State, which in many ways could, could just as uh, much as Grambling or Florida A&M been at the center of this book makes it you know, all the more appropriate to be here and to be presenting with, uh, with Erica Blanc-Danois. And as uh, Carl said, Erica and I met when she was my student about 15 years ago at Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. And as I was saying to Erica's daughters just before, your mom is major. Erica was selling articles to the New York Times while she was still in graduate school. And so it's no surprise to me that she's gone on to have such an incredible career as an educator and, uh, and as a writer. And her book is, is exceptional. Um, and also this, uh, you know, in keeping with the idea of music, I'm just the opening act. So, you know, when Erica comes up, then in the spirit of James Brown, then it's star time. So, uh, <clears throat> but I will try not to uh, get booed off the stage like opening acts sometimes do. And it's really, and we're going to each speak separately, and then we're going to take questions together since there's really a lot in common with these books. And maybe the biggest thing that's in common is that we sometimes look at aspects of life, whether it's sports 
or whether it's music, as something kind of off to the side, fun, but a diversion, not really tied into what matters in life, the political issues, the great moral issues of the time. But what Eric and I have both found, for me, with black college football, for her, with Soul Train and Don Cornelius's battle to get a black-themed music show on television, is that there's no way to be an aware African-American and not be part of the movement and uh, not take a stand in whatever way you could. And we're proud to take parts of African-American life that have brought us pleasure, but also give them their place in the history of the movement as well. And to be here especially at this particular time, you know, we've just gone through the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, of the I Have a Dream speech. And those anniversaries are really part of a broader fabric of really vital civil rights events that all took place within a few months of 1963. Some of them were uplifting, some of them were maddening and, and heart-wrenching, but all were essential integral parts of uh, the civil rights narrative in America. So yes, these were the months of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, also the months when Bull Connor turned his police dogs and fire hoses loose on the child freedom marchers in Birmingham. The months when John F. Kennedy finally gave a speech in support of a civil rights law, which Lyndon Johnson ultimately pushed through the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but also the months when Medgar Evers, the NAACP leader in Mississippi, was assassinated. The months when Martin Luther King gave us his most enduring written contribution to freedom literature, a letter from Birmingham jail, and the months when white supremacist terrorists bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. So all that has been on our minds these last few weeks. And simultaneously, what's been on a lot of our minds, those of us who are football fans, has been the beginning of a new football season. And it's a season that's notable, among other reasons, for having more African-American quarterbacks starting in the NFL than ever before at one point in the season as many as nine. Now, football being football, the number varies every week depending on who got injured or who got benched or who got acquired in the trade. It's been about eight or nine the whole season. And obviously, in this part of the country, a lot of focus on RG3. Um, I'm a University of Wisconsin graduate, so my man is Russell Wilson, um, now on the Seattle Seahawks. And of course, there are many others. And here in Baltimore, I don't need to tell you who that is and what he's holding on the bottom. Ozzie Newsom, who's one of several African-American GMs, general managers in the NFL, and he and who came back from the dead last night, um, have two Super Bowl rings for keys. And then at the college level, the BCS champ, University of Alabama, they're having a photo op with our African-American president, Barack Obama. Alabama is a team that now has probably half or more players African-American, several African-American coaches. And someone pointed out to me when they're watching the Alabama Ole Miss game a few weeks ago, there was one African-American on the refereeing team. So you might ask, what do these things have to do with each other other than the fact that we've been marking the civil rights anniversaries and marking the start of the football season all within the same period of weeks? Well, I'd say that there's a lot that they have in common. And the headquarters, the thing that unites them, that brings these stories together, is really told in the 1967 football season. 
and told at two schools, primarily Florida A&M and, and Franklin College. And when we think back to the Jim Crow era, the era of the iron rule segregation in the South, we certainly think of separate drinking fountains, separate bathrooms or the lack of bathrooms for black Americans, separate waiting rooms, restaurants, hotels, um, lunch counters, and so on. But football was every bit as segregated in the South. And that was no accident. And in fact, football in the South was an incredibly important pillar of the cult of white supremacy and of the legal architecture of segregation. There was an amazing detail I came up with in my research. Now, a lot of us know and grimly remember that scene on the bottom left there. George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, who would ultimately recant his racist views, but at this time in the early 1960s, was the leading national voice for, as he put it, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever, defying the Kennedy administration, refusing to allow an African-American student to enroll. Well, <clears throat> there are two things we forget that kind of spin out in that photo. One is that he did have to get out of the door not too many months later, made Alabama, however reluctantly and begrudgingly, admit a few black students. And the same thing happened at Ole Miss and at University of Georgia. And we hallow those pioneers, James Meredith, Charlene Hunter, Hamilton Holmes, and others, those barrier breakers. But here's the thing. At all those schools, the football teams remained all white for years to come, for five years, seven years, a decade or more. 1969, the biggest college football game of the year. Number one, Texas versus number two, Arkansas. President Nixon and Reverend Billy Graham were there watching it in person. Both teams, all white. Both coaching staffs, all white. No one even thinks that that's abnormal. Alabama was all white until the early 1970s, all right? Almost a decade after George Wallace had to admit a black student, or several. And here's the reason why. Martin Luther King famously said that the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning. He's referring to church. But I think he just as easily could have said the most segregated hour is kickoff time on Saturday afternoon. Because football in the South was every bit as ironclad in its segregation. And the reason why I think is summed up in a line from Alabama's fight song, your Dixie's football pride comes in time. Some people will say, and none of us believe this here, but some people say that's an appeal to regional identity, regional pride. But I really don't think the African Americans in the South were thinking that they were involved in rooting for all white Alabama. That song was a dog whistle, as we say, a coded message to white supremacists in the South saying, Alabama is our team. And if an all-white team with an all-white coaching staff can be number one in the country, can be national champs, then whatever we've had to give in on elsewhere, we know that white supremacy is still intact. That was the cultural power that football had. But you know, all along there was this other narrative of higher ed, and it was the story of the HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities. A few like Morgan were in border states, a couple were in the north, most were in the south. Some had been founded by religious denominations that really wanted to partner with black Americans for higher education and everything that promised down the road. But most of them 
were set up by segregated governments. I'm sure this was Morgan's story as well. And set up for one reason. They didn't want to have to desegregate the major state universities. You want to keep Maryland all white, you start Morgan State. You want to keep LSU all white, you start Grammar. You want to keep Florida and FSU, Florida State all white, you open Florida A&M. But an amazing act of jujitsu happened after that. And that was that the black Americans, the students, the faculty, the administrators, the staff who populated these schools didn't settle for inferiority. They pushed and cajoled and robbed Peter to pay Paul and did whatever they had to do to get enough money and to get the approval to expand their course offerings to become centers of science study and liberal arts education and to become, no matter how they'd been set up initially, which is really with a limited mandate to produce black teachers for black schools and train farmers and better farming techniques and you know, trade people in mechanical skills. Even if that was the original mandate, black Americans didn't settle for that. They made these centers of pride and aspiration and instilled a culture of excellence in them. And so if you think about <clears throat> black history in the 20th, 20th century, how many great African Americans came out of the HBCUs? Just to start will be an immensely long list. Ralph Ellison, Thurgood Marshall right here in his home city, Benjamin Elijah Mays. And if you come forward to the period of the movement, you know, we say, and it's true, that without the African American church, there would have been no civil rights movement as we know it. But the same thing could be said of the HBCUs. Without the black colleges, there would be no movement as we know it. Every boycott, every sit-in, every freedom ride, every other action involved foot soldiers and leaders who were produced by the HBCUs. Diane Nash up there from Fisk, John Lewis, her classmate at Fisk there during the Selma March, Jesse Jackson, football team quarterback and a student leader uh, in the Civil Rights Movement at North Carolina A&T. And that culture of excellence extended to the football programs as well. And you have a, a legendary coach here in Baltimore, and I want to give homage to Earl Banks, who did so much. Um, but for now, I just wanted to talk particularly about the two coaches who figure most prominently in my book. Eddie Robinson at Grambling, Jake Gaither at Florida a and And they were coaches who looked for a way through sports to contribute to the movement. And it wasn't always easy to do for men of their generation. You know, I was thinking a lot about them when I went to see the film The Butler. And I think probably a lot of you have seen it, many of you have read about it or, or heard about it. But the character called Cecil Gaines in the film, but based on an actual historical figure who'd been a Butler for five or six different presidents, he reminded me right away of these two coaches. He's born in the Deep South early in the 20th century when it looks like segregation will last forever. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. And he sees the most terrific kind of violence visited upon his own parents. And he escapes from it. And he makes his way, maybe not to the north, but at least to up south, to Washington, D.C. And has a family, has a wife, gets this job as a butler in a hotel, then ultimately leads to the White House. And he never tells his wife and his sons what he endured. He thinks, maybe if I don't tell them, somehow they'll be spared the hate of a great deal of the white world. But that's an impossible goal. 
he can't make that happen. And so when his sons see the inequalities, one of them in particular gets very active in the movement. And Cecil Gaines is worried about him. He's worried about, you know, being arrested, being beaten, being killed. And his son misreads that worry and misreads his father's job into thinking his father is someone who just, you know, bows down to the white man, someone who doesn't care about freedom for black people. And there's a poignant speech that Forrest Whitaker gives. I have to wear two faces. There's the false face that I show to the white man, the face of the butler who's always polite, always compliant, never ruffled, never loses his temper, no matter what, has to endure all kinds of humiliations. And then there's this real face, which is the face he has among black people, among black folk. And his son doesn't immediately grasp that. And as I was saying, watching that film, I thought so much of Eddie Robinson and Jake Gaither, born in those terrible years in the early 20th century, both of them began their coaching careers in the wake of lynchings. Jake Gaither went to Tallahassee in 1937, right after, two weeks after a double lynching, which was applauded in the local newspaper. Um, Eddie Robinson went up to Grambling in 1941, two years after a lynching there, so awful that really for decades, actually, black people in Grambling, which is an all-black town founded by freedmen, avoided at all costs going into Ruston, nearby White Town, where this lynching had happened, where a young black man had been pulled out of his home, taken to the lynching tree, tortured, hung, shot, and it was celebrated like a municipal holiday. Hundreds of people there having a picnic. So they had seen that. They understood the terrible, terrible injustice that was meted out to black people who either stuck out or were just perceived as sticking out. And they had, as people wanted to be coaches, experienced in their own sport what it meant to be on the receiving end of a racist society. Eddie Robinson, when he was a kid in Baton Rouge, wanted to go see LSU play. The only way he could go into the stadium was to be on the cleaning crew. Jake Gaither had it even worse. Jake Gaither, when he was a high school coach before he got to Florida A&M, wanted to go to coaching clinic at Duke University, which of course was all white then. He knew they'd never accept him as an equal. He knew he couldn't go as a coach. So he wrote a letter and said, can I please be the janitor? Can I come sweep the floors? Because he thought, maybe then I'll overhear some lessons, I'll see some plays diagrammed on the chalkboard and all the white coaches have gone home. They wouldn't even let him do that. They wouldn't even let him be the janitor. So no one needed to tell them anything about the unfairness of the world. And yet they set out through sports to try to make change, to try to do it in their own way, which was gradual and indirect, but which they hoped would be successful nonetheless. They were men who were role models. They both had master's degrees. You know, the Southern schools wouldn't let them go to grad school there. So guess what? They got degrees from better schools in the North. Jake Gaither from Ohio State, Eddie Robinson in Iowa. They had lifelong marriages to educators. Eddie Robinson there with his wife, Doris, who was a high school English teacher. Jake Gaither with his wife, Sadie, who was an English professor at FAMU. And they encouraged the players on their teams to come and visit them at home to see these loving marriages among equals modeled for them. Jake Gaither 
at a time when everything was segregated in Tallahassee, when literally a black person could not set foot on the campus of Florida State unless they were, you know, in the cleaning crew or something like that. Every private business was segregated in Tallahassee. Jake Gaither would have a coaching clinic every summer, and he was such a brilliant strategist of football that the top white coaches in the country would come down there. Woody Hayes from Ohio State, Frank Howard from Clemson, even Bear Bryant, all of them would come there and they'd sit. It was so hot in the summers in Tallahassee, you know, no AC at FAMU in those days. They'd sit out under the, the oak trees with the Spanish moss as Jake Gaither was working the chalkboard there. Black coaches and white coaches sitting together, breaking briefly the stranglehold of segregation on Tallahassee, Florida. They didn't say, your son's going to start all four years. They didn't say, if your son comes to college, we'll bring his friend along on a free ride, too. They said, if your son comes to Grambling or FAMU, he's going to go to church every Sunday. He's going to go to class every day. He's going to get a degree. And they kept that promise. When those young men got up to college, that's what they did. The Eddie Robinson was known at FAMU, I mean, known at Grambling, for walking through the dormitory in the morning ringing a cowbell to wake up his players so he'd get, they'd get to class. He'd have an assistant coach waiting in the cafeteria with their meal cards so you couldn't get fed the whole day unless you went there at breakfast to get your meal ticket. Because he knew if you wake up and go to have breakfast, you're going to go to class. Everything else is going to take care of itself. Jake Gaither at, at Florida A&M had his assistant coaches monitor the class attendance and the class grades of all their players. And if someone wasn't doing well, Jake Gaither didn't call up the professor and say, hey, we need this guy eligible, cut him a break. Jake Gaither called in that player and said, get your lesson. That was the mantra, get your lesson. And uh, Robert Shaheed, my new friend from, from WEAA who was here, lived in the dorms with Ken Riley, the great quarterback at Florida A&M, who had the highest grade point on the team. That was the kind of thing that Jake Gaither and Eddie Robinson cared about. And they hoped it would be enough. They hoped that those indirect things would be enough. Because Jake Gaither and Eddie Robinson believed in the better angels of America. They thought of this as a fundamentally good country that could be won over with enough evidence of black excellence and black decency. But you know what? By the time we get to 1967, it's 13 years after Brown versus Board of Ed. It's four years after the March on Washington. It's three years after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and nothing is changing very much in the South. This is the period of, as the Southerners, the white Southerners called it, massive resistance, which at a minimum meant that you just don't implement the law of the land, okay? Kind of familiar of some things that have happened uh, in the House of Representatives lately. You don't even implement the law of the land. You don't obey Supreme Court decisions. And at its worst, it means you bomb churches and kill little girls, whatever it would take not to implement desegregation. And so for the players and the young assistant coaches and the campus activists looking at Eddie Robinson and Jake Gaither, they're perplexed and they're critical. And they're saying, why aren't you out there with us? How can you believe in the goodness of this country? To them, it's a flawed country. It's even a deeply immoral country because of the race hate, the original sin of slavery in this country. And James Harris, the quarterback at Grambling, of whom I'll tell you more in a moment, 
who, like all of his teammates, reveres, worships, loves Eddie Robinson, owes the whole future on the horizon to Eddie Robinson. James Harris sometimes comes home from practice having heard one of Eddie Robinson's oratories about how great America is and shakes his head and says, Coach Rob sure does wave that flag and he doesn't mean it as a compliment. And Eddie Robinson and Jake Gaither, they know this is the way people are talking about them. They know they're called Uncle Toms and handkerchief heads and Benedict Arnolds and all kind of variations on the N-word that I won't even repeat here. They, and it hurts them to the core. But maybe it serves a purpose too, because in 1967, they each do something that's gonna move them overtly, explicitly into the civil rights cause. Eddie Robinson is gonna have the breakthrough year for James Harris on his way to being the first black quarterback in the NFL. And Jake Gaither, there with the governor of Florida, Claude Kirk, is going to go to the state government of Florida and use all the political capital he's built up over decades to be able to play the first ever football game between a black team and a white team in the Deep South. So let's talk about James Harris a little bit first, and I'm going to try to wrap this up before too long because it's star time is coming. Um, but James Harris, as a young man in Monroe, Louisiana, already has the aspiration to be a, a quarterback in the NFL. He has self-selected. He's uh, got all the physical equipment. He's a very intelligent young man, son of a minister and a nurse. He's got a kind of a preternatural maturity about him. But he's also debating already, should he ask his high school coach to switch him to wide receiver or defensive back? Because he knows as a student of sports, that's what happens to every single African-American quarterback who gets to the pros and a lot of them at the white colleges, even in the north, to every single one. And the reason why is that it's not just about being quarterback. The idea of a black quarterback is tied in with some of the central tenets of white supremacy. Because a quarterback has to be the most intelligent man on the field. There's no more intellectually demanding position in sports than quarterback. But blacks are supposed to be intellectually inferior. You can't have a black quarterback. The quarterback is the field general, he's the leader. But blacks are supposed to take orders, not give orders, especially not to whites. So you can't have a black quarterback, can't have a black field general, and you can't have a black quarterback being the object of the hero worship. How is white supremacy gonna survive if little white kids wanna put on their number 14 jersey like James Harris, because he's their hero? So he knows that's what he's up against. But inspired by Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, he decides not to change positions. And about a year and a half after that, Eddie Robinson comes to the Harris family house to recruit him. Because Eddie Robinson has had this as his goal also. And you know, things don't happen by accident. The, you know, Jackie Robinson, he was handpicked to be the first one. Rosa Parks, she didn't just happen to be on the bus one day. The movement in Montgomery knew they needed the most ideal, impeccable, strong-hearted, iron-backboned person to be the face of the movement in Montgomery. They chose her. Same thing with James Harris. So Eddie Robinson reconstructs the whole Grambling football program to prepare James Harris to go to the pros. He switches from a team that mostly runs to a team that's going to throw downfield a lot more. He brings in this man, Doug Porter, who used to be the head coach at Howard. 
passing offense expert to tutor James Harris. He recruits three future pros to be wide receivers, Frank Lewis of the Steelers, Essex Johnson of the Bengals, Charlie Joyner of several teams, the last of them, the Chargers. And every year, every summer, Eddie Robson goes to the pro training camps and he comes back with plays written down on scraps of paper, on paper bags and placemats and napkins. And when grambling players already in the pros come to help with summer practice, they bring their playbooks. It's all about getting the curriculum, the playbook curriculum that James Harris will have to master for the pros. And there's one more piece, that man up there, Kali J. Nicholson, a brilliant you know, barrier-breaking African-American journalist who's now the sports information director at Grambling, and he's the one who trains James Harris in what he calls Interviews 101, dealing with the hostile media, dealing with the hateful fans, preparing for every hard question and every challenging moment he's going to have in the pros when he's the first. And that season of 1967, you can see the experiment is working. Middle of the season, Grambling goes up to Tennessee State, coached by the man with the cigar, John Merritt, and quarterbacked by the brilliant Eldridge Dickey, who a lot of people think may be the first black quarterback to make it in the pros, and James Harris outplays him. Throws three touchdown passes, the last one, 25 seconds left, wins the game. The Orange Blossom Classic, the Super Bowl of black college football, 8-1 Grambling against 8-1 FAMU, 25 pro scouts in attendance, I'm not going to tell you who wins the game. You've got to read the book to get that. But I will tell you that James Harris is Grambling's MVP, and that is not lost on the pro scouts. And meanwhile, at FAMU, you know, I talked about how people were critical of Jake Gaither for not being out there on the barricades with them. But in a way, it was even worse, because Jake Gaither, over the years, had had these friendly, cordial relations with one white governor after another, segregationists, all of them. He would write them complimentary letters when they won election. He donated money to the Democratic Party when back then it was the party of segregation. He set up an all-white seating section in the FAMU stands so white legislators could come see those games without having to have any physical contact with, God forbid, a black person. And so people wondered, how can this proud man, Jake Gaither, this excellent student of, of Negro history, as he called it, who gave eloquent speeches about it to black audiences, how can he be such an Uncle Tom? How can he be such a suck-up to the white man? But Jake Gaither was playing the long game. What he was doing was using up all of his good, was building up all this goodwill for one thing, which was to be able to play a game against a white team. And in that 1967 season, behind the scenes, he goes repeatedly to the state house, to the state legislature, to the Board of Regents, to cash in all of that political clout so he can play that game. And it creates a problem for the state because they can't really say no. They don't dare antagonize Jake Gaither, but they don't want to say yes. Because in a white supremacist society, what would happen if a black coach outcoached a white coach, if a black team was better? And in a racist society built on the idea that blacks really don't want to be around whites anyway, if you mix the races, it's just trouble. You have a game like that, it'll be a riot. There'll be race war in the stands. But they can't say no. So the deal is they don't put it in writing. They don't want their fingerprints on it. But they give Jake Gaither a verbal yes. And let me tell you, for two years, no one takes up his offer. University of Florida, Florida State, Miami, not interested. 
Finally, this great man, Fran Kersey, the coach of the University of Tampa, no accident, originally from Pittsburgh, not a product of the segregated South, an Italian Catholic who a lot of white Southerners think isn't quite white himself for those two reasons, he takes up the offer. And this spoiler I will give you. When they play that game in November 69, FAMU wins. And Frank Kersey tells the media, I was outcoached. But that's not even the most important thing. The most important thing is 45,000 people are in the stands. And in this nail-bitingly close game, there's no taunting. There's no fighting. There's no race riot. What there is, check this out, is the largest act of desegregation of a public facility in the history of the South. A football game. A football game. From emancipation in 1863 to November 29, 1969, this is the biggest act of public desegregation. And just to quickly finish James Harris's story, he has an illustrious career at Grambling. The pros, though, are told by him and Eddie Robinson he's not going to change positions. So he's not invited to any of the all-star games to strut, to strut his stuff for the pro scouts. He's not taken till the eighth round by the Buffalo Bills. And he's so frustrated he calls Eddie Robinson every night from training camp. But Eddie Robinson gives him the message that generations of black ministers and teachers and, <clears throat> and parents gave to the young people the message of you have to be twice as good to get an equal chance. And James Harris is twice as good. And he wins the starting job in Buffalo. And a couple years later, when they wave him and he catches on with the LA Rams, he's three years there to change football and change America. NFC champs, twice. NFC passing leader, twice. Pro Bowl MVP and voted team captain by his white and black teammates and supported by his white coach. And even then, even when the Rams' front office overruling the coach, bringing four different white quarterbacks to try to take his job, and none of them do, and the Rams trade him away, get rid of their problem, quote unquote, you can't roll back history. It's already been made. And so what we see today, every African-American quarterback who's there now, starting with Doug Williams out of Grambling, who you remember winning the Super Bowl with the Redskins, and Warren Moon, and Cam Newton, and Michael Vick, and Donovan McNabb, and Colin Kaepernick, all of them, every one of them, Steve McNair, who played with the Ravens here, they all came through the door that James Harris opened. And so there's a lot to celebrate. You might recognize some of these photos, you people in Baltimore here. And a lot of it's owed to people like this. But I also want to say one final thing. Not everything has ended perfectly. We have many black coaches and GMs and quarterbacks in the pros. We have too few black coaches and athletic directors in college. And we see an imperfect society, the society of the Trayvon Martin verdict and voter suppression, the society in which the continuing inequalities in funding had grambling student athletes boycotting last week to call attention to that. But what has been accomplished is significant. And I'll say this in closing. Martin Luther King, in his last speech to the striking sanitation workers in Memphis, said prophetically he wanted to be remembered as a drum major for justice and a drum major for freedom. I would never compare anyone else to Dr. King. But I will say this. 
When you think about Eddie Robinson, Jake Gaither, Ken Riley, Collie Nicholson, Doug Porter, James Harris most of all, to use some of the football terminology, think of them as being field generals for freedom and equality and justice. Thank you. It's an honor to be here with my former professor. Um, I could talk a little bit about how he uh, tortured us as students. Um, <laughs> if we came one minute late, he locked the door and we weren't allowed in. And uh, all of us students, we, we thought he was just the worst thing in the world. And we found out in the end that um, he was the best, he was actually the best teacher that I had at Columbia. Um, and uh, the students there that were in the other class, I don't actually remember the professor's name, but uh, were jealous that we had Professor Friedman. And so I'm honored to be here with him today. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I've taught since then and modeled my class, um, actually on Professor Friedman's class. I've taught uh, at Baltimore, um, here in Baltimore at Morgan State University and now at the University of Maryland and um, College Park. And so, uh, again, just honored to be here and thankful that uh, I have some friends here. Um, Cheryl, is I grew up with her uh, since we were eight years old. And uh, we, uh, when I talk a little bit about my musical background, I won't tell anything about the things that we did when we were eight, but uh, when I talk about my musical background, I can talk a little bit about um, how Cheryl came to my house and spent the night and would go through my father's record collection. Um, my father worked as a, a DJ at WPFW in Washington and, uh, and actually as a stagehand as well. Um, and sometimes my sister and I would work the spotlights at uh, shows like uh, the Funkadelics and um, uh, you know <laughs> various shows. But when Cheryl came to spend the night, we would go through my father's record collection, and so it's great to see her here as well. Um, and so, in talking about Soul Train, how I came to the story of Soul Train, I often get asked the question, why Soul Train? Um, and, you know, the question is, why not Soul Train? Everybody loves Soul Train. But, you know, I realized that there was an, uh, an important story that had not been told about the show. Um, Don Cornelius uh, began uh, his career at WVON, which is a radio station in Chicago. And it was one of the most popular black radio stations in the country at the time. The Chess Brothers um, owned the station from Chess Records. And Don began working there as a reporter covering the civil rights movement. Um, and, but he really was very much interested in being a DJ. And so when DJs were sick, he came in and, and acted as a DJ and hoped that one day they would stay sick and not come back. <laughs> and, um, and so in covering the civil rights movement, he, um, the civil rights movement, um, there were people that music had always been part of the civil rights movement. So 
The Bartone Washington featured performers like Odetta and Marian Anderson and Mahalia Jackson, and people responded to the civil rights movement and the struggle of the civil rights movement in song, from protest songs to gospel to soul and R&B, all of these genres came out of that struggle. And so the language of black radio um, and black DJs and the rhyming style that Don eventually brought to Soul Train, that was the template that he brought to television. Um, and so DJs like Wesley South at VON and Roy Wood and um, in DC, um, Petey Green were a big part of um, quelling the riots that came from the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, because they stayed on the air for 24 hours at a time and told people that riots were not the way, were not the solution to the problem. And so, TV shows, um, some of the TV shows that came out of that backdrop were shows like Soul, which was a PBS show um, in New York that featured the host Ellis Hayslip. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers that show, but it was a very overtly political show. So um, he featured, for instance, a show, there was uh, a show where the Nation of Islam members were in the audience and he was interviewing Louis Farrakhan about um, the Nation of Islam being critical of homosexuality. Uh, another show featured an hour-long set of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, there were shows that um, Nikki Giovanni was interviewing James Baldwin. So it was a very uh, revolutionary and overtly political show that on PBS that started in 1968 and ended in 1973. And in part, um, the reason that it ended was because of lack of funding. And so <clears throat> I think, well, and, and actually I talk about it a bit in my book that Ellis Hayslip was a, a mentor to Don Cornelius. And um, Don Cornelius understood that part of the uh, problem of why Soul did not endure was because sponsors were not ready for that kind of overtly political um, show. And so uh, in talking to Don Cornelius, he um, you know, it, they came together and Don realized that he could uh, do a show that was a lot more subtly um, political. And so the, soul, the, the scramble board, for example, uh, was educational. Uh, and I don't know if any of you guys remember the Soul Train scramble board. Okay. And so, <laughs> so uh, it was teaching. And, um, but entertaining at the same time. So what KRS-One, the hip hop star, would call it edutainment. It's a combination of entertainment and education. And so um, the show was able to do and endure in part because Don owned the show. With $400, he was able to purchase the show. And um, that was, for you know, a black man at that time, a very it's a big deal. It's a big deal today in the landscape of television that we are facing today, even. Um, and so, 
Uh, so what came out of, well, you know, I had to ask myself too the question of why, is, why did Soul Train endure? Why do people still at weddings have Soul Train lines? Why, um, why does the brand endure? Why does the show still air on Centric and BT? And, you know, what is it about Soul Train that makes it a lasting, uh, iconic brand? And so I thought a little bit about all of the elements of the show, from uh, having Jesse Jackson as um, in Chicago, he gave him a platform for Operation Breadbasket, um, to having Reverend Al Sharpton, a 17-year-old Reverend Al Sharpton on the show, um, and giving him a platform to obviously that you know the fashion, the fashion of the time, the eclectic fashion, to the dance, the dancers. Uh, wherever I go, people ask me, "Well, did you find the dancers? Did you find my favorite dancer or this person or that person?" And so obviously, dance and art um, and music are what endured for the show. Um, and what endures in terms of black culture is that music, art, and dance are very much a part of everyday life uh, for African culture. And um, I think he brought that element to television, to a wide audience, and that uh, it sort of validated what we had already been doing. Um, and basement parties, and on street corners, and barbershops, at the language that we were using, um, the things that we did after a, a, you know, a hectic work week, um, all of those things were brought to television and, and uh, validated in terms of other people realizing what we were doing and realizing that it was something that was important. Uh, in terms of also, why the show endured, I think it was because he, Don Cornelius could teach a clinic in diversity. So he employed people from, you know, having women in positions of power behind the scenes. He um, had artists on the show from Duran Duran to um, Captain and Tennille to Herbie Hancock to... Um, you know, hip-hop artists. Um, so he, the diversity of the talent from superstars like Aretha Franklin to mid-tier artists um, to, you know, one-hit wonders, he allowed them to come on the show. And so there was no other show that was doing that at the time. Bandstand, if you were a superstar like, you know, Aretha Franklin or Michael Jackson, you, you had a chance. But if you were... Um, a talented group that that had one hit uh, for whatever reason, then you know you would not make it on a bandstand. So he was filling that void, and you know that is what made the show so successful is that he filled the void that um, you know Dick Clark was not. In fact, uh, Dick Clark realized that early on, and and when the local show in Chicago took off. Dick Clark took Don Cornelius to lunch several times and tried to buy the show from him. Um, and each time Don told him no, <clears throat> and uh, rightfully so, he had ended up in LA uh, you know, a year 
later, and the show took off immediately. Uh, but then Dick Clark was not ready to give up. Uh, three years after that, he attempted to create his own show, which was called Soul Unlimited, which, <clears throat> excuse me, which was a copycat version of Soul Train with a black host, black dancers, and a uh, less cool version of Don Cornelius. And uh, it caused a lot of, <clears throat> obviously, a lot of rancor. And, and um, Clarence Avant, Jesse Jackson, and Don Cornelius banded together and wrote letters to executives at ABC and the network um, that had aired the show Soul Unlimited and said that this is not going to happen pretty much. <laughs> and uh, You can read more about it in the book, but basically they were saying that, because um, Don initially had pitched his show to the networks and the networks refused. And so um, they were saying pretty much that it was not uh, not fair for you know lack of a better term that Dick Clark was able to air his, this show that Don initially had already pitched um, and so in thinking too about um, Soul Train and after after I got the contract which uh, was early September of 2012 uh, a little bit I had arranged to meet with Don Cornelius and uh, his uh, the Soul Train people. We had made appointments to finally have him sit down and do an interview. Um, and he was, you know, notoriously a private person. And so, you know, it was a big deal for me to be able to finally do that. And, you know, I remember I was sitting in a meeting and I got all this flurry of text messages. And I didn't want to look at my phone because I, would, you know, I didn't want to interrupt the meeting. <clears throat> but then they kept coming so often that I had to look at my phone. And I realized that uh, people were texting me saying that Don Canaries had committed suicide. And so <clears throat> I had to then start to think about, uh, you know, first, you know, my first reaction obviously was shock. Um, thinking about this iconic figure that I watched as a kid and this super cool uh, guy to me, you know, what could have led him to, uh, you know, down a path where, you know, every Saturday he brought us joy. You know, he brought us the best in music, um, you know, for all intents and purposes. For us, it was a concert. You know, it was so much of a concert that sometimes we'd actually get dressed up and watch the show. And so, you know, what would lead um, this iconic figure to that path? And so I had to start thinking um, about, you know, like what uh, Professor Friedman, and I still call you Professor Friedman, said about um, being twice as good. And, you know, Don had to be twice as good in order to make it in that environment. Um, he talked about the scramble board, which was fixed. And it was fixed for a reason, because, you know, early on, one of the dancers had... Uh, spelled the name incorrectly of, of the answer for the band that was uh, on the show. And he got a flurry of letters from people saying, um, you know, these N-words can't spell. You need to take this show off the air. And so from then on, <clears throat> he insisted that they know, you know, how to spell the answer to the scramble board and that they do it correctly. So 
you know, in every aspect of the show, he insisted on perfection, from the production quality to, um, you know, to the bands practicing and, and lip syncing, as <laughs> we found out. Uh, you know, most of the bands were actually lip syncing for a reason, because he, he did not have the leeway to make mistakes. And so um, I had to think about, you know, him as a perfectionist and how that, you know, affected him personally. And I had to think about, um, you know, w there were other external things, you know, his health was deteriorating. He, um, you know, he couldn't walk, he couldn't drive, he couldn't do the things that he, you know, was accustomed to doing. He was going through a bitter divorce. And, um, but more than that, you know, he was also, uh, his time had sort of come and gone. He was Mr. Soul Train, but the people that he had helped and uh, made a place for, the artists that he had, you know, broken and, and given a platform to, didn't, you know, weren't returning his calls. He was alone. He had, you know, been this pioneer. And, you know, being first is often hard, and people, uh, forget <laughs> that you have, you know, made this place for them. And so, you know, in addition to being, um, you know, having health issues and going through personal problems, he found himself to be alone. And so those were the, you know, the external issues. And, and like I said, I was talking, you know, having to think about, you know, black excellence and how that affects people having to be twice as good. I had to think about, um, you know, uh, what he was going through in his last days. I had to talk to detectives and family and friends and, and, and think about that and think about, you know, um, this persona he had to create as the host of the show, uh, this super cool person who, you know, who rhymed and, uh, and, and dressed in the most fabulous, fantastic, you know, clothes and, um, you know, had this rapport with musicians um, and made them comfortable. But when he went home, you know, he was Don Cornelius and he was, uh, <clears throat> you know, somebody who had to battle people like Dick Clark and um, and other people who were, and, and who had to be protective of the brand um, for a reason. Uh, and so, you know, in doing that, I had to, when that happened, it sort of changed the direction of the book when he committed suicide. It changed the direction of the book in that I had to start thinking about um, what it was like for him to be in this landscape where he was the only one. Um, and, you know, <laughs> what that means today, you know, in the, in the context of television today. How have things changed, really, or have they? You know, and then also, you know, the people that he has paved the way for, what have they done with that? You know, from the BETs to the TV1s, um, and what he thought about that. You know, what he thinks about where we are in the television landscape and the cultural landscape today. So, <clears throat> um, in, in, in ending, in ending, I will, in parting, uh, we wish a little peace and soul. No, in parting, I, um, <laughs> I, I, I thought about, too, you know, I was talking to my daughters earlier about, um, 
the Soul Train line and Soul Train. And, you know, my youngest daughter said, I really like the music that you listen to. You know, I don't really listen to the music that, you know, my friends listen to. And I thought about <clears throat> why the Soul Train line and uh, Soul Train, when it comes on, why we all still watch it. And, you know, in part, it is because of the music. You know, the music made the show. Um, and Don Cornelius said, as long as the music was good, the show continued. So even into, you know, the 90s and, and the 2000s, um, as long as the music continue, you know, continued to be great, the show continued to be great. And so with that, I wanted to show uh, clips of some of you know, iconic moments from the show. Overnight, Don had become one of the first African Americans to own a TV show. The premiere episode hit the Chicago airwaves on August 17, 
feel the payback is sort of like the theme song of Young Black America in 1974. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was it hard uh, to go on a diet like you did? <laughs> <laughs> it really was. Believe me. <laughs> I wish I could join the Soul Train line. Dance with Don? Dance, dance with Don. That's the new thing. Okay, Don, can I dance with you? Oh, yeah. You can dance with you. <laughs> you think I could come up that soul chain line? Gotten something? Say who were. Hey, aren't you Frederick Douglass? Yeah, we studied about you in school yesterday. About how you were a slave and how you took your own freedom. And then began to fight for freedom and dignity for all our people. Say, but what did I forget? Are you going to go out into the world with your hair looking like that? <laughs> well, Mr. Douglass, you know, times have changed. We wear the natural now. You call that a natural? That's a mess. I've been watching the progress of our people, and I'm quite familiar with the natural. And I'm also aware that it is worn as an outward expression of pride and dignity. So haven't you forgotten? Right. My Afro Sheen poem easy and hairspray for Sheen. You know, I can dig this getting my throat together. My sentiments almost exactly. Well, how's this, Mr. Douglas? Mr. Douglas? Man, ain't nobody gonna believe this.
debate about whether or not I can dance. I yes. don't choose to, Don. Okay. It's time for change, and everything is changing, and those that don't really grasp the change is going to get left. Mm -hmm. Trust me. This is the line. X, don't cross it, all right? All right. Bobcat, stay away from it. I think this was a standoff. We'll have to have a rematch. <laughs> How about it for Bobcat and Mr. X? How about it for Younger in a natural. You will look younger with your beautiful natural hair, so why not do it? And do it right with Afrosheen. Nothing gives you tangle free styling like Afrosheen Comb Easy Conditioner. And for a fro that's really laying, use Afrosheen Hairspray for Sheen. Dynamite. A younger look is yours with a natural. A beautiful natural is yours with Johnson's Afrosheen, the largest selling products in a natural world. In 2006, Soul Train left the station for the very last time. It had been on the air for a staggering 35 seasons. A feat that at the time made Don's Labor of Love the longest running syndicated series ever. 35 years in having the longest running syndication in the history of TV is incredible, and we should pay homage to that. <laughs> Don's legacy is the tapestry of mediums and platforms by which we can see Black music now. Come on and get to this next week on these same stations and you can bet your last money. It's all going to be a stone gas, honey. I'm Don Cornelius. And as always, in parting, we wish you love, peace, and soul. Thank you. We ask our two presenters to take the stage, and this is the time for Q&A. If you have a question, please come towards the mic, because we are podcasting this. Um, Dr. Freeman, in spite of the great career that Bear Bryant had at Alabama, he never had a Heisman Trophy winner until Trent Richardson, an African-American young man, won it uh, two years ago, year ago, I believe. Well, I'm certainly not here. Uh, you know, I think Bear Bryant was a really great football coach, but a very morally compromised person. Um, uh, so I... He was probably the one person, this gets beyond the question about the Heisman Trophy winner part, but it's a good opportunity. To, he was probably the one person in Alabama who could have done something to really bring about desegregation much more rapidly. He's probably the one person in that state more powerful than, uh, than George Wallace and more popular. And he chose to be, you know, as I said, extremely late to the dance. I'm, I'm always disturbed that... Uh, in sort of football journalism circles, there's uh, 
a reverence about him that includes, I think, giving him a bit of a free pass on, on the issue of, uh, of segregation and sometimes claiming, to my mind, never without enough evidence, that he really wanted to make the change sooner. Um, but I feel like he's one of the ones who could have done it. And, uh, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, a coach like Fran Kersey, who had much less latitude, wasn't famous, wasn't a statewide hero, taking the step he took, you know, several years before Bryant, you know, finally, after Alabama started to lose games to integrated teams, took his. Right. And, you know, many years there was always a great classic in New York between Grambling and Morgan State that was just historical. Uh, just like in basketball, I, I remember many years ago when they, uh, 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 African American college um, that played Wake Forest, uh, and, and the, when they couldn't play them, they played them on a Sunday and beat them. So we are, you know, there's a history that uh, we ought to, those of us who lived through the ages uh, of the 60s, because I am a product of the 60s and served in Vietnam, we should uh, tell our young people the stories and, and, and make certain that they know it before we go on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good evening, authors. I'd like to uh, first thank and commend you for uh, presentation that was very well done. I sort of had a multi-tiered question in reference to uh, the Soul Train book. I wanted to know, at its peak, how many markets did Soul Train enter into and um, if it was broadcast internationally? I was always curious about the origins of Johnson's Johnson products and whether it was a black-owned company or maybe just a subsidiary of a larger uh, white-owned company. And you had mentioned also the diversity that he had uh, within Soul Train behind the scenes. And I was wondering if there were any names that we had recognized that uh, moved out into broader markets after uh, sort of cutting their teeth at Soul Train. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, let me answer the Johnson products one since we showed the commercials there and I didn't get a chance to talk about the uh, where the origins of that came from. Yes, yeah, so it definitely was a black-owned company um, and it was so successful that it made it to the New York Stock Exchange. And um, I have a passage in the book where Martin Luther King came to Chicago and visited the offices of George Johnson who owned Johnson products. And uh, he walked to the top of the stairs and he said, now this is black power, and, you know, in terms of economic power, um, because they were so successful. And so um, for Don Cornelius to have them as a national sponsor is really what made the, also, you know, that's another element that made the show endure for as long as it did, because shows like Nat King Cole's show and... Um, uh, you know, even PBS, the show that I talked about, Soul, with Ellis Hayslip, in large part um, did not, you know, did not last because of sponsorship, um, and particularly sponsorship in the South that were not, you know, were, were reluctant to um, embrace a black-oriented show. So yes, definitely Johnson Products was black-owned, and my mother still buys Afrosheen today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can attest to that. Yes, my kids. Um, the second question, what was the last question that uh, she asked? International. Yeah. I was wondering how many markets it entered into at its peak and 
And uh, was it broadcast internationally as well? Yeah, definitely, yeah. In fact, um, there were shows that were filmed in Puerto Rico. I wish they would license some of these shows that, so that we can actually see them. But they were, yeah, they, it had gone international. And, and eventually um, there was a show that was broadcast in Japan, an offshoot of it, um, that I, don't, uh, I didn't talk about. But there, there was a, another version of the show that was broadcast in Japan. And still, um, today, it's aired in, in other markets and uh, um, bootlegged, <laughs> particularly um, in Asia and Europe. So, yes, definitely, it, it, it was broadcast in, in London and, and spread throughout the world. And your last question, I missed the last part. I was wondering if there were any names we would recognize that sort of had an internship or maybe you had mentioned how diverse it was behind the scenes mm -hmm. with Soul Train and I was wondering if there were any names we might recognize that made it out into the broader uh, market. Yeah, I mean that was the story too that I found to be so interesting um, and just had me doing more research when I kept finding out these people who we know in popular culture who had started out on Soul Train. So for instance, um, Patrice Russian started out as a dancer. Uh, Patrice Babyfingers, <laughs> Russian. Um, Walter Sweetness Payton, talking about football, was a dancer on the show. Um, and then other, you know, executives behind the scenes. So Sid McCoy, who was a radio DJ in, uh, at WVON, he, he does the, you know, signature introduction to the show. Um, Mark Warren, he, I don't know if anyone remembers the show Laughing, but he was an executive on the show. Um, and he was one of the few people, um, the first people, rather, on that first episode to work on the show. Um, uh, Leo Sullivan, who was one of the cartoonists for um, Fat Albert, the Fat Albert series, ended up doing that first Soul Train, you know, the cartoon Soul Train. So he was a, a cartoonist for the show. Um, you know, Rerun <laughs> from What's Happening was one of the first dancers on the show. Um, from the lockers, Tony Basil from um, she was one of the lockers on on the show. Just there were so many people that started out on and and people who were you know appeared on the show from Chi and Chong to Marsha Warfield. People who you know in some cases this was their first televised appearance. So um, he he made a lot of artists, actors, um, you know musicians. Uh, you know, even later on, hip hop artists. You know, I talked to Curtis Blow, and he talked about how being on Soul Train, even as late, you know, as the 80s and 90s, was still this career-defining moment. And so when he, you know, came after, you know, after he had appeared on the show, and he came home, and he was on 125th Street, everybody was like, oh, my. you know, he hadn't been a star, even though he had been touring internationally at that point. But when after he appeared on Soul Train, he was this mega star. Everybody's like, we saw you on Soul Train. Oh, my God, you're, you know. And so, um, you know, there were there so many people, and it's in the book, but <laughs> some of those people that I mentioned um, that began their careers on the show. So those are just a few. Jody Watley, yes, yes, absolutely. Yep, Jody Watley was a dancer, and they actually handpicked her to be in Shalimar, along with Jeffrey Daniel, who, you know, was credited for um, teaching Michael Jackson to moonwalk. So, 
I mean, just, you know, there's so many. There's plenty of people that made it from that show. You're welcome. I had a football question also. And it's also sort of multi-tiered. Uh, which historically black college or university produced the most uh, professional football players for the NFL? And which coach had the uh, highest winning percentage? Okay, the, the team that produced the most future pros is definitely Grambling. Um, the count is somewhere between 110 and 120. The coach with the highest winning percentage is probably Jake Gaither, whose winning percentage was about 85%. Um, the only other one who I think, I'm not sure where Earl Banks' percentage ended up, and then John Merritt at uh, Tennessee State had a really, really uh, strong winning record also. So I'm not certain exactly where they rank, but I think, I think that Jake Gaither is top among them. I know that his percentage is better than Eddie Robinson. Eddie Robinson at the at the end of his career, had a few years that were kind of not so good and probably drove his percentage down a bit at the very end. Yeah, um, <clears throat> uh, Mr. Freeman, yeah, I, I actually first heard your interview on EAA last month. I think uh, Anthony McCarthy. You're right. He was interviewing you. Know, unfortunately, I got here late this evening. But I, I was really fascinated by the book and the interview because, like you said, so much of our history is lost that people don't discuss the things that folks went through back in that time, even in collegiate sports, which was uh, something that uh, a black uh, student from high school could go to college, could actually receive a college degree. If you look at someone like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a lot of people don't realize that he was not only a, a, a superior athlete, he was also a superior student. He graduated One of my uncles of was class. a music professor at UCLA and had him in class yeah. and told me he was a very good music student. Yeah. You know, and there were just some people who were doing some fantastic things back then, even Coach Eddie Robinson. A lot of people don't really know who he is, but he should be revered for not only his football prowess as a coach or whatever, but all the young men who now are college graduates, uh, are good citizens and things like that. So I, I commend you on putting that type of book out and to give people uh, a source of reference that, really, like I said, I was just fascinated with the interview. I, I, t I turned my car off and just sat there and I listened to it. And even this morning you were on again and I caught the interview on my way to work, but I just didn't have time to, like I said, I got here late, but I, I really appreciate uh, that type of documentation because so much is being lost and people are just, just thinking that we just arrived at this point. But there's a lot of history and there's a lot of people who fought and struggled uh, to get us to where we are now today. So thank you for that book. Well, all I can say is words like yours or what any writer dreams of having. And, you know, especially, you know, with the oddity as being a white guy writing this, you know, story of incredible black history and black achievement. And I just felt like it was a sacred honor to be allowed to tell that story. It was luminous, extraordinary, brilliant history on its own, but it's always important to set it down. 
And um, I just feel fortunate to have been the one who got to do that. And I tried to do honor to these, you know, really, you know, these giants who walked the earth. Right. And even though at this point, even right now, if you read the papers, of course, Grambling is it, the students at the football team is actually mm -hmm. going on strike. But even at that, it's not probably the best thing to ever happen, but it just shows the courage and, and the students having an understanding that, you know, you, you have to stand up if you believe in something that seriously. You know, so uh, it's, it's just good. I want to dovetail again on the young lady. Uh, actually, I came late for that because I heard you were going to be on the same program. Mm -hmm. But I grew up at that Soul Train uh, time, too, and it was like the early 70s. And I just remember, like you said, everybody would just rush home on Saturday. <laughs> it would come on like about 1 o'clock. So if you weren't at home at 1 right. and you came home late, you weren't going to see it because there weren't no VCRs. VCRs right. There wasn't no DVR recorder <laughs> or anything. So you had to be in front of your television set to see it. And uh, I, I really liked it. I thought it was, a, you know, it definitely was a groundbreaking program. Launched a lot of careers. Yeah. Um, I admired Don Cornelius probably towards, well, I always admired him, but towards the end of his career, I really admired him because as music, as black music started to change, mm -hmm. he realized that I can't, he didn't really relate to when it started going into the profanity and the use of a lot of foul language in the music. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. I don't represent that generation. And he stepped away from it. So there was a lot of people that kind of stepped in mm -hmm. and filled the void, probably even before he became ill. But he just, he had enough respect for the music and for his program. He said, the music has changed a bit too much, and I think I'm going to step off at this point. Yeah. So yeah. I like that about him. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, too, though, as a, as a businessman, he realized that... Um, the music was selling and that it was still something viable in terms of business. Um, and hip hop was not all profane, you know, <laughs> um, Public Enemy and, and uh, you know, Eric B and Rakim and, and even the Beastie Boys appeared on the show. The Beastie Boys did slam dancing into the audience. And so, I mean, he, he I think it was, I think he just felt like he had grown out of it. You know, he had aged out of this kind of music and he realized that you know, the sayings that he used in the 70s were not the sayings that he could use in the 80s and 90s. He wasn't, you know, he tried and he, you know, used terms like I'm chilling and, 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 and you know, tried to keep up. But he realized uh, that he needed to step down. Um, and it was in part because of health reasons um, and in part because he realized that he just wasn't the hip guy in the, in the 90s and the 2000s that he was in the 70s and 80s. So... Uh, just one quick question for each of you. On, on Soul Train, when Don Cornelius first started syndicating the show, mm -hmm. I was wondering what were the, his breakthrough markets in the South or if that was difficult selling it there. Yeah, I think the first market in the South was uh, Texas. Uh, and the only one, actually, one. In, mm -hmm. in the first, um, yeah, in the first uh, syndication process. Um, uh, and in terms of syndicating, I think that um, that's what allowed him to, you know, have the show on the air as long as he did as well. So, yeah. And on on football, and when Jake Gaither, he was the one who started having the clinics that were attended by, 
How late was that? And I was wondering if it was early enough that there was resistance to even covering that aspect of it by southern some of the newspapers in the area. Well, those clinics I know were happening at least as early as the 1950s. Um, it wasn't just the clinics that didn't get covered. Basically, the white newspapers of the South, with the exception of a couple that were very liberal on civil rights, like the Miami Herald and the St. Petersburg Times, most of the other white papers just didn't cover anything having to do with the black colleges. It wasn't just the football clinic. It was the football games. It was almost anything that happened on those campuses. Um, it was amazing what coverage they ran was prime if they ran at all, was produced by the sports information directors at the black colleges. And, when, and even when the white papers did cover it, they would make basic errors that they never would have allowed themselves to make covering a big white school. They'd get the wrong player catching the, the you know, game-winning pass. They'd have the wrong opponent in the box score. It was you know, just part of an overall um, attempt to ignore black life there and certainly not to record it, not to treat it as anything worth being covered. Okay. Thanks. Anyway, um, I'd like to, well, I guess you'll have the last word, yeah. right? Um, I just want to say thank you so much for coming. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. We have plenty of books out there for both um, Erica and for Sam. So we ask both of our speakers to head out at the table so you can sign. And if you have any more chat with them, you can speak with them while they're signing. Thank you again. <laughs>